modern usage, the term dictator is almost always utilized as a pejorative label for someone who rules oppressively and unchallenged. Adolf Hitler, for instance, is generally considered to have been a dictator, ruling over Germany for more than a decade, achieving power through democratic means, and technically maintaining counterbalancing power structures, but nonetheless essentially unchallengeable in practice. Benito Mussolini of Italy and Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union, too, are generally considered to have been dictatorial rulers, though their methods of attaining that status and the specifics of how they climbed the ranks and consolidated their power varies. The term dictator was not always considered to be a bad thing, though. It was just a title that referred to a certain collection of responsibilities and a particular type of power. The concept of justitium in the Roman Republic which was the period between the Roman Kingdom and the Roman Empire, and which lasted for nearly 500 years, between about 509 to 27 BCE. This concept referred to what's sometimes called a state of exception, instigated during a period of emergency. So after a ruler dies or during an invasion, the Republic, which means they had rule by the people through a Senate and other legislative bodies, and they had a constitution outlining citizens' rights at such moments where time is of the essence and things are not normal and the stable status quo is under threat. Such a period could be declared, and a magistrate, an elected official, would be declared dictator, given nearly incontestable power for the period of the emergency or for six months, whichever was shorter. During this period, the dictator would be sworn to a cause fending off the impending invasion, perhaps, or maintaining public safety until a new leader was elected. The dictator could do things like convene meetings of the Senate, but a lot of their power was reliant on how well they worked with the other magistrates, and thus they seldom overstepped or grew mad with the power they wielded. There were enough traditions in place and potential power counterbalances throughout the system to keep any single dictator from seeing the benefit in trying to maintain hold on the reins of power past their due date. This all changed after the third of a trio of civil wars, during which a Roman general named Lucius Cornelius Sulla defeated his political enemies, politically but also in battle, at the Battle of the Colline Gate. After that battle, Sulla declared himself dictator of the Republic, had his political enemies and their families hunted down and killed, changed a bunch of laws, to make the Senate more powerful, to solidify his allies' influence, and to prevent future generals from taking over the way that he had. And then, a little late, but better late than never, I suppose, gave up his dictatorial powers to run for office. And he won. Notably, one of the people on Sulla's kill list, who only managed to avoid being murdered because his extended family kept him hidden and eventually successfully pleaded his case, was the then very young Julius Caesar, who would eventually end up conquering gobs of Europe for Rome before returning to the Republic to essentially take over and convert it into an empire, with himself at the helm. Caesar apparently later mocked Sulla for having stepped down, resigning the dictatorship out of tradition, despite having, in practice, the mantle of lifelong leader of Rome. <laughs> 
had he decided to keep it. After taking over, Caesar was declared dictator, then elected dictator for another ten years. After just a few more years, though, he was proclaimed dictator for life, which removed all remaining checks and balances on his power, though his reign, with that particular title, only lasted a few months, as he angered a lot of wealthy overclassmen with his generally quite popular and populist changes to the system, and he was thus assassinated after less than five years in office by a group of 60 senators hoping to prevent him from converting the republic back into a kingdom. This assassination, though, led to a new series of civil wars, and in a meandering way, also led to the end of the Republic, and to the eventual ascendancy of the Roman Empire. What I'd like to talk about today is governmental power, checks and balances, and our perception of both during unusual state-of-exception periods. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, but it was originally sourced from the Associated Press, and it's entitled, Hungary's Orban Strikes Back at EU Criticism on Extra Powers. This was one of the more understated and unslanted pieces about this particular story, and finding something that wasn't more heavily editorialized or analyzed was not easy as the story at the root of this article has a lot of people around the world up in arms attempting to draw attention to what is happening in Hungary. In late March 2020, Hungary's parliament passed a bill that allows the Hungarian prime minister, Viktor Orban, to govern by decree for the duration of the COVID-19 pandemic. Among the emergency powers newly granted to Orban is the power to indefinitely extend the emergency the ability to essentially just say that something must be done, and then to have it done, bypassing the typical democratic process in the country, and the ability to jail people who defy pandemic emergency-related orders. It's also now illegal to spread quote-unquote fake news in the country, that term defined by Orban and his government, and doing so is punishable by up to five years in prison. This bill was passed into law by Orban's own party, which controls two-thirds of the country's parliament, and this comes in the wake of a steady diminishment of democracy and freedom of the press in Hungary over the course of the decade that Orban has already been in power. Concerns held by freedom of speech and democracy watchdog groups around the world, then, are generally considered to be warranted here, as in the past, Orban has used his influence to reinforce his party's control of government mechanisms, to replace judges and other such positions with loyalists, and to extend previous emergency periods past the end of the emergency. By years, in the case of one such measure, passed in the midst of the 2015 migration crisis, but extended well beyond the point that migration numbers had dropped back down to normal. Now, if you're thinking... Hey, that all sounds eerily similar to something that has happened or is happening in my country right now. You're not alone in that. Orban's actions are a very overt and somewhat ham-fisted version of what we're seeing around the world, across all kinds of cultures and within all flavors of government. Here in the United States, where I'm hunkered down for the duration of our currently fairly uneven state-by-state and even city-by-city, in some cases, quarantine measures, 
There have been accusations leveled at President Trump, saying that he's taking advantage of the current emergency to reinforce his hold on the branches of government, to punish his perceived enemies, and to bolster his and his party's chances of winning upcoming elections. A recent piece in The Atlantic, entitled Authoritarian Populists Have Six Classic Moves, Trump's response to COVID-19 uses five of them, says that Trump is engaged in a campaign of disinformation about the virus and about his actions and inactions related to it, that he's limited press access to public health officials and threatened to withhold resources from states with leaders who question the president's policies, that he's doubled down on anti-immigrant rhetoric and policies under the thinly-veiled cover of pandemic-related efforts, He's threatened to do things he cannot legally do, like opening up the economy in states where local leaders have closed things down. And he's undermined the independence of the CDC, both structurally and through his words and actions. The one traditional authoritarian move that this piece says Trump has not made yet is to use the emergency to influence the outcome of the upcoming presidential election in November though some would argue that he's already leaned in that direction by supporting efforts to automatically mail ballots to older voters, but to not do so for any other age demographic, a policy that is seen to heavily favor the conservative Republican Party at the expense of everyone else. In Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has prevented the country's parliament from convening, which has kept them from addressing his upcoming criminal trial for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust a trial that has now been postponed. He also, in the middle of the night in mid-March, issued a decree that authorized police to track the mobile phones of anyone they suspect of having COVID-19 without having to go through any privacy-preserving, rule-of-law-maintaining approval processes. Russia, Italy, the Philippines, Thailand, Singapore, South Korea, India, Jordan, Poland, the UK, Chile, Bolivia, these are just some of the countries around the world so far that have passed measures that bypass legal norms, giving the government or some portion of the government the ability to unilaterally shut down airports and imprison people without trial, to illegalize protests and public gatherings, and to shut down, fine, or imprison journalists and journalistic entities for reporting things the government classifies as fake news according to their definition for the term, which in practice often means things that the government finds to be inconvenient or which doesn't line up perfectly with the story that they're telling the public through official channels. There are a lot of new tracking capabilities, new human rights violating powers, and a lot of new economic levers being handed to governments and politicians around the world right now. And although some instances are more alarming than others because of the historical context, and because of the nature and temperament of the individuals holding positions of higher office in these countries, few of them are without any concern, because few of them have a clear sunset provision attached to the powers that they grant. A sunset provision is a measure built into a new law or decree or statute that says, basically, this applies until so-and-so day, or until these specific measurable goals have been accomplished. At that point, this rule, these new powers, either disappear or degrade in some significant way. Arguably, part of what made the Roman Republic model of emergency dictatorial powers work was a firm, well-established sunset provision that said those powers would be handed back within a certain period, 
or after a specific set of goals had been accomplished. This provided the person wielding said powers with the incentive to use them as intended and to deal with the danger with the emergency rather than reinforcing their own power or otherwise rebuilding the system in their and their people's, their tribe's, favor. It was understood that this was a temporary thing, and as such, any effort to extend one's authority beyond the delineated period would be met with pushback from those whose support would be necessary to enforce and implement that authority. And in many cases, it seems that the person's social status actually increased from doing a great job with these additional powers and then having the quality of character to hand them back. The trouble with modern lawmaking is that the very checks and balances that slow things down so that oversight can be established and protocols can be followed and stuff can get done are also some of the biggest and most potentially harmful constraining factors in the early days of an emergency. Bureaucracy and limitations help us keep things from slanting too far one way or the other under normal circumstances, but they're also handicaps that can keep us from being as effective as a society when we need to jump into action and get things done yesterday. Because of this dichotomy between the way things usually function and the way that we need them to function when everything is on fire, it's often prudent for those in charge to frame the narrative of what is happening so that the public is not just aware of the threats they face, but also afraid and called to action to face that fear. It's prudent, in other words, to attempt to get the public as a whole on something like a war footing so that we feel that our way of life is in jeopardy but there's something that can be done about it, and all we need to do is give the government more power so that they can take care of things for us. Now what's worrying is that very often this is the truth. We need a focal point of power if we want to get anything done within certain circumstances. It's just that while that is true, it's also not as simple as that. Many people living in the United States during the events on and following September 11th, 2001, will clearly remember the change in national attitude, which happened essentially overnight, because everyone was scared, because we didn't know the full extent of the threat we faced, and as a result, we gave incredible powers to our government, many of which were brought into effect under the terms of an Umbrella Act called the Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism Act of 2001 better known by its acronym, the Patriot Act, which, as its more verbose name implies, was meant to provide the U.S. government with extraordinary powers for a period of time, allowing them to get to the bottom of what terrorism and government-funded terrorism threats we might face and what might need to be done to decrease or eliminate those threats. But this act has been extended in scope and duration far beyond what many people assumed would be its end date, and it has granted the U.S. government powers that go way beyond what many people assumed when it was sold to us by the government at that point as well. We are still surprised to this day when we discover new abuses against foreign nationals and American citizens that are technically allowed under the auspices of this act, and its continued existence is ensured by the continued existence of a nebulous concept called the War on Terror, something that, as more recent events have shown, is far from the most potent threat this country or most other countries face, but which nonetheless has become an excellent catch-all excuse to do just about anything, 
and to pass just about any law, granting the government ever more potent powers, despite any human rights concerns that those powers and the actions taken under their auspices might entail. This is the same sort of move that we're seeing right now around the world, in countries led by leaders with a great deal of human rights credibility and those with histories of authoritarian tendencies. Some of the measures being implemented have some type of sunset provision in place, but most of these are vague and tough to measure. A bit like the Patriot Act in the United States, they could be easily extended because, for instance, you could argue that there are always pandemic threats in the world every single day, and there always will be, most likely. So the president or prime minister needs to maintain the ability to lock people up and censor journalism just in case, even after the main COVID-19 emergency situation has been handled. Some of these governmental extensions, though, lack even the most basic sunset provisions, and consequently, it's a fair concern to have that these emergency measures will become a new reality for people living in these countries, rather than just a temporary during-the-pandemic thing. Those in power as a rule, and this is true across all different types of power structures, seldom willingly give up the powers that they wield. One of the marvels of modern society is that we have so many peaceful transitions of power, primarily as a result of the democratic frameworks that we've put in place. But even within countries where that transition works well almost always, the state itself still maintains and aggregates power from leader to leader, so it's not just a matter of a particular party or specific politician increasing their grip over time. It's the establishment into which each new leader steps, inheriting the fruits of the power-gathering efforts of their predecessors and further increasing the range of powers they enjoy, which will then someday be handed on to the next person who occupies their job. It's fair, I think, even knowing all of that, understanding how these things get put into place, the misleading nature of some of the narratives that are used to convince us to allow these things to happen, and the questionable legitimacy and aims of some of the people who wield these powers. I think it's still a legitimate perspective to maintain that this is a necessary and normal component of governing a society. It's a legitimate stance, in other words, to feel that it's okay for power to centralize at the top, because if it didn't, it's likely that those in charge with the responsibility to react first and lead during emergencies wouldn't have the resources and wherewithal to do so. And the fact that these institutions increase the range and potency of their powers over time means that they'll be more capable of doing so in a wider variety of ways and at greater scales moving forward, and so will all of their successors. What's more, in this specific instance, many of the powers being granted revolve around allowing governments like the government in South Korea, to invade an individual's privacy and to surveil them through their devices, like their smartphones, for lack of a better term, but to do so, arguably, for the benefit of all, so that society benefits even if the individual sacrifices some of that privacy in the trade-off. Governments that very quickly stepped in and leveraged their power in this way have, on average, so far at least, seen better success at flattening the curve of infections of COVID-19, which has potentially saved a whole lot of lives. It may actually be that dictatorial powers of this kind, even when they step on the rights and interests of individuals, 
and news entities even, and other institutions of that nature, could be in the best interest of society at times, and thus are justified, despite the many downsides that sometimes come with them. The logical end point of such a conclusion, though, of such an argument, brings us around to a somewhat uncomfortable place, because ultimately, there will always be another next emergency. We won't know what that emergency is until we face it, and there are novel emergencies, varieties of danger that we've never faced at scale before, always lurking on the horizon. And so if we want to be as secure as possible and as ready as possible for whatever the world or the universe really throws at us, it might be prudent, according to this logic, to create an omnipotent world government, a government that would have the resources of the whole planet to draw upon, the ability to mobilize at the largest scale possible for humanity as a whole, and to give essentially uncapped, unchecked powers to those in control, those who maintain and enforce this system, at least during periods of emergency. There are a great many obvious downsides to such an approach, among them that people running or even just someplace within such a system could easily abuse their position for their own gain. I don't know that we've ever had a system made up of humans in all of history in any culture that has not been milked by someone who was part of it in some way at some point. Corruption seems to be endemic within a large enough system of any kind. A sprawling entity of this kind would also be likely to flatten people and regions, averaging and bunching us together to make things more measurable and manageable rather than leaving us with a patchwork of approaches and laws and everything else like we have today, with our great many governments and resultant great many approaches to whatever we do, which gives us that many different examples and experiments to learn from, to benefit from. And this is true of the everyday things to the far rarer things, like how we deal with emergencies. That diversity is beneficial, as it allows us to try a lot of different things at once, rather than having a single top-down templated system that leaves us more vulnerable if we ever get something even a little bit wrong in terms of our response. So there are trade-offs to the concept of world government, just as there are trade-offs to granting individual governments more power even in moments where they clearly need to effectively deal with an emergency situation. There are also trade-offs, though, on the other end of the spectrum, to not granting any power to these institutions. I can't tell you how many scholars of privacy and surveillance capitalism and other elements of modern society, people who are very skeptical of government power because of what it allows those governments to do, in terms of invading the space and privacy and rights of individuals, how many of them I have seen speaking out in favor of certain limited new powers being granted to these governments and other large institutions. It's not that the human rights question and the privacy question and the surveillance question is no longer important. It's just that it is a gray area that most people in practice will actually tend to occupy. The extreme to either side has so many downsides that it's difficult to apply just one label to any concept to decide that you're going to be a pure supporter of one end or the other and to not be brought into conflict with the immense number of downsides that the reality of that stance would force us to deal with at some point in the future. It'll be a while, I think, before we're able to run the numbers on the variety of COVID-19-related responses that we've seen around the world. 
that I suspect will find that different permutations of responses worked in different areas due to cultural differences, governmental variations, and even the difference between when the virus arrived in the area, how much it had mutated up till that point, and how much preparation people had both psychologically and infrastructurally before it landed in earnest. I also suspect we'll see rundowns of what we lost during the height of the pandemic in terms of human lives, in terms of healthy years for those who became infected and survived but had damaged organs, and in terms of productivity, wealth, and all the other metrics we might use to judge such consequences. I also suspect we'll have the opportunity to recalibrate some of our fundamental systems, some of the structures we took for granted, but which have since shown themselves to be flawed in some way. And that includes some of the infrastructure that underpin our societies, but also some of the ideas, the philosophies that we've long held about everything from how we implement healthcare to how we implement monetary policy. These things will be newly assessed and questioned and reframed, We will look at them in a new light now that we've all been through something fairly novel. A new perspective has been acquired, and new priorities and ambitions may fall into place, influencing our future behavior. This recalibration will almost certainly take place within our governments as well, and it's possible that we'll end up with more authoritarian, long-term dictatorial policies, structures, and people within our legal and social systems for the foreseeable future. Fear can make us somewhat numb and vulnerable to such things, and we've all faced a good amount of justifiable fear in recent months. It's also possible that new powers will be established, and those powers will be used toward different ends, giving more power to journalistic entities, not less, for instance, or increasing social safety nets, rather than pulling in the drawbridges and telling the vox populi to fend for themselves, unless they need a war fought or a vaccination developed. Likely, because of the nature of the world in which we live, we'll see a bit of both. Some countries going in one direction, other countries going in the other, and this will be true of the powers granted to governments, but also things like human rights and the speech freedoms that some of us still thankfully enjoy, and the ability to protest and make waves when something isn't going the way that we want, the ability to elect officials to whatever degree that we're able to do so currently. Many of these things are very tenuous right now, and they will likely only become more tenuous in the near future as the main body of this disease-related threat gives way to the next set of threats. It'll be interesting to see how we deal with the apparent conflict between, for instance, the freedom of privacy or relative privacy, and the potential benefits of being surveilled during a pandemic. I can absolutely imagine a world in which we decide, hey, these things that are violations of our privacy to a certain degree are also worth investigating further. It's worth figuring out how we might use these tools to the greater benefit of all, as opposed to the half measures that we have in a lot of places currently, where privacy is being invaded, but because of the surreptitious way in which it's happening, most individuals are not benefiting, while a very few data-collecting companies are. It'll be interesting as well to see which governments sunset their emergency powers, which governments incorporate them into the standard collection of powers that they currently enjoy, and which double down, grabbing even more power while they're able, their actions cheered and supported by some of their population, even as others begin to feel like their country and their rights are slipping away 
as the world moves on towards some new sense of normalcy. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Permanent Record by Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden is a name that may sound familiar to you. He is a very famous whistleblower. Some people would call him a leaker of information. I think he would argue against that particular moniker for a variety of reasons. In any case, he is somebody who did a fairly extraordinary thing, whether you think it's a negative or positive thing, and his history, his life, was also fairly interesting and extraordinary, particularly the story of how he went from being a very clever member of a traditional governmental and military family to somebody who whistle-blew on the NSA and showed the world that they've been spying on essentially everybody for a decently long time. A huge competitive advantage that the U.S. government had that was also very illegal, and the divulgence of which, publicly, caused a massive hubbub less than a decade ago, and continues to be very influential on all of our lives today. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Permanent Record by Edward Snowden, somebody who, by the way, is still speaking out in favor of privacy and anti-surveillance measures, despite everything else that's happening right now. So he's stayed pretty true to his guns in that regard. That's Permanent Record by Edward Snowden. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find some of my other writing projects at exilelifestyle.com and askcolin.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.